So what the incarnation is, is not, hey, we need a sacrifice in order to remedy this whole judicial problem that we've got in the future. Christianity is about our corrupted species, the creator, the son of God, the logos, right? The agent of creation enters our species in order to heal it and repair it and make it incorruptible from the inside so that that lifeline back to God is, you know, sort of reconnected and that we through union with him and the sort of sacramental life of repentance and so on, imitation of him can somehow partake of his incorruption and basically be remade, putting off our corruption for incorruption. going on everybody welcome back to the show i'm seth this is the can i say this at church podcast thank you for downloading the show today whether or not that was you intentionally doing it or your phone just randomly playing the next thing you thought you would want to hear i'm glad that it chose this (laughs) i'm glad that you did too anyway all jokes aside i really want to get into this one quickly because it's slightly longer than normal and that's fine So I brought back guest Nathan Jacobs, who was on a while back, and we had a very deep conversation in that one as well. Funny story, I think you'll hear me reference it in the show. Maybe not. It might be in the patron-only version. I can't remember now. Uh, I ran out of memory space last time I spoke to Nathan, like legitimately could not record anything else, and I think we shaved it off like 45 seconds away from... I don't know what happens if you actually max out a memory card. I don't know if it corrupts. I don't know what it does. Anyhow, wasn't the case this time. I came in with time to spare. So with that being said, we're going to talk a bit about begotten. Like what is that? What does it mean to have begottenness? And what does that mean for our faith, for Jesus, for the cosmos, for you and I? It is a fascinating conversation. Now we do jump off a few rabbit trails and I mean, what kind of a conversation does it? So here we go. Roll the tape. Scholar in residence of philosophy and religion and the religion. Oh, gosh. See, scholar in residence of philosophy and religion in the religion, in the arts, in contemporary culture program at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. Nathan Jacobs. Yep. You you did it. It's mouthful. (laughs) How are you? That feels like. That feels like after religion in the arts, it doesn't feel like that should be in that sentence, but I'm, I don't know English, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Not bad. How are you? It's been a while. It has been, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe longer, maybe less. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Time is, um, time shifts with, with little league seasons. So it's just one little league season to the next. So, um, I'm good. I'm good, man. Um, I'm, I'm glad you reached back out. You, you were among a handful of people that I'm like, that was a fun conversation. And literally, I still Thanks. tell the... So I don't think I've ever said this on the show. For those listening, in our first episode, which I'll link somewhere in the transcripts, I do that now. I transcribe the episodes because I need nice. other things to, to keep me busy. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I ran out of memory in the middle of our conversation. So literally at the end, I was like, so I have five minutes left. 
you have five minutes. <laughs> you have five minutes. It's a hard stop. <laughs> and then it's, it will stop you. I don't know if it corrupts the file. I don't actually know what happens. I just know it's, I just know it stops. Um, so I came a little better prepared today. Um, okay, great. But yeah, so you had reached out. And um, before we get there, so what is new? It's been a couple years. What is new? What should people Damn. know? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot new. Um, let's see. I've, I'm no longer at University of Kentucky, as the title you read indicates. I moved from Kentucky to, uh, to Tennessee, the Nashville area, now affiliated with uh, Vanderbilt as opposed to UK. Uh, but a big part of the move was because of my ongoing work in film. Uh, so I don't know how much I can disclose about the projects I'm working on, but suffice to say, uh, it sounds like uh, the next project, much bigger project than any of my previous ones, has now been um, greenlit or will be this week, um, as well as what looks like could be, um, how do I say this in a, a cryptic way, uh, an opportunity to keep on doing more uh, film projects uh, well beyond that. So anyway, I'll just say that. Yeah, so no, that things, sounds good things are heating up in terms of the, the film side of things. Um, and then, in, I mean, in terms of academics and all that, I continue to write and speak and, and publish, but film has been a sort of primary focus. And, uh, and then, you know, my sub stack, I, I suppose I should plug that. You should. Right. So, so uh, I started a sub stack, which um, for me was a little odd because um, as I mentioned to you, this one, friend of mine, Grant, who we have some sort of mutual connection with. Uh, he is, uh, he's a Lutheran pastor. We met initially because he reached out to me because he wanted to learn patristics. Uh, so, mm. uh, he was a student of mine. And then, um, and then anyway, we developed a friendship over time and he, he realized, whoa, you, you tend to write these emails to people in answer to questions that are really, really long and really theologically rich. You should publish those. Which to me, uh, if you look at my publications, they're all academic journals yeah. and like Cambridge and things like that. And it's like, well, what journal would publish any of these? And he's like, no, there's this thing called the internet, <laughs> and you can publish things there too. Put whatever you like, want. Really? Is that is that is that called publishing? I didn't know that. That's weird. <laughs> so anyway, um, so that's where the Substack thing emerged. And so basically, it's it's exactly what it says. It's it's theological letters that I've written over the years to people. And there's probably like 70 plus such letters that I'm yeah. just slowly rolling out. Um, and so anyway, um, yeah. yeah, so so that's, uh, that's what so Nathan a jacobs.substack.com. Yeah, is the address. That's fun. And you've enjoyed doing it so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, in many ways, I find these letters, they're, they're enjoyable for me to write because to do the sort of high level academic public publishing that I typically do, it's, you know, I enjoy that too, but it's a, it's a lot more laborious to work through and create sort of citation and quotation apparatus and things like that. Whereas when people just ask you theological questions and you say, Oh, let me give you an answer. Yeah. Um, and some of that falls away. There's, I don't know, there's, I find it a lot I, have, I find it rather fulfilling to just sit there and just share a theological answer without the pressure of all the academic apparatus. And so to actually put that out there and say, oh, well, maybe there are some other people who would want to read these other than just the one person I wrote them for. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. uh, well, we'll see. I guess we'll see. Yeah, you know? I can relate to that. That was the whole reason I started the show. I had questions and then other people were like, you should put that on the Internet. And I was like, why? This is, <laughs> these are my questions. And then it's, right. and then other people are like, yeah, but that's, 
I have that question. So, yeah. Right. So I'm gonna right. I'm gonna guess a venture of what your video is, and and this was again I didn't really know what your answer was going to be. So I'm guessing that you're making a a newer version of of a chosen the chosen little Jesus TV style, no. but but more for the Eastern, you know, after after Nicaea that region. Yeah. So it's just going to be those couple hundred years there. That feels right. Why not? Right. <laughs> why not? Uh, no, I mean, it's a good guess. I can see why you went there. But I'll just, I'll just say this. It's a horror movie. So I'll just say that. Um, well, I mean, depending on your denomination, also could still fit. <laughs> also could still fit. I suppose that's fair. I suppose that's fair. All yeah. right. So, so, <laughs> I'm horrible. I'm going to burn. I'm horrible. Uh, all right. So... I do want to get down to business, mostly because I know you have a hard stop and my son will come home around the same time and then the dogs will okay. go crazy and, you know, life will take back over. Um, so you had sent me your Substack, and and then for those listening, yours, so Nathan, yours is the only, the, the second Substack that I subscribe to. Thanks. It's not something that I search out, but it is mm -hmm. something that I'm like, when I get in there and I find one, I'm like, I like this because there's almost something where I find that authors or, or people that are expressing their thoughts tend to write in a little bit different way when they know that mm -hmm. there's people paying for the content. Maybe you're less guarded, maybe you're not. I don't know. In there, though, what were you going to say? I heard you take a breath. No, 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 yeah. no. No, um, no I, do, I do, well, you know. No, I, I do hope that <laughs> I try to make sure that the content is worth paying for. I'll just say that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. In terms of the point that people write differently if they know people. Yeah, well, I mean, for right. context, for those that have never subscribed to Substack, like you will spend more on an, on a burnt Starbucks coffee with caramel <laughs> every week. Um, yeah, so, I mean, why are, we, why are you playing games? Just do it. Anyway, same thing could be said for Patreon, though. I mm -hmm. usually plug that at the end, but why not? Okay, so <laughs> there's like a four-part series here. And I'm not even really sure I'm saying some of the words right. Um, okay. That will that will be my Protestant ignorance, right? So okay. you got a begotten, not made. Is the Nicene mm -hmm. distinction cogent? And even the word cogent may need some definition. I had to Google <laughs> it. It's fine. But there's like a seven-part premise here. And I'll, I'll just kind of, in a nutshell, give that premise. And then we can go okay. wherever we need to go. And I'll ask mm -hmm. the next dumb question, which will honestly right. be 100% truthful because that's about where okay. i'm at still as i've read through some of this so um right. you basically build on the eunomiums you you know i don't even know if i'm saying the that right uh eunomians. Yeah. yeah that argue the following that all that which is begotten is caused the son is begotten of the father therefore the son is caused mm -hmm. all that which exists is in itself is not caused therefore the son that is not that which exists all that which bears the divine essence in, is that which exists a say i'm not sure what that means and then therefore the sun is not that which bears the divine essence which i have a i don't i, I told somebody what we were talking about and they were like mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating tell me more i tried to tell them a little more and they said mm -hmm. interesting um oddly enough one <laughs> of them gave the same well what about the angels which i think is in like the second mm -hmm. version of this like well those those fit all the time. i was like Funny you say that. I just read that yesterday. So where should we begin for someone like myself that grew up in a Western uh -huh. church that is mm -hmm. spoon-fed 20-minute homilies every Sunday, and then we don't think about religion outside of that or theology? <laughs> where should we begin with even trying to tackle the topic of sure. begottenness? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things—I I mean, out of curiosity, 
can I ask what denomination church you go to? Is it so? A sure. I currently go to a cooperative Baptist church, okay. um, which where I'm at in Virginia basically just means yeah, we have women in ministry, and okay. our views on homosexuality are our own. Stay out of our business. Mm-hmm. I don't want you missing money, SBC, and so don't tell me what to do. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, but I've also gone to non-denominational. I've been to uh-huh. you know Lutheran churches. I've I've attended Presbyterian churches. Mm-hmm. Pentecostalism usually scares me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because you know why not? We're not supposed to raise your hands in church. There's no raising of hands. So. <laughs> Well, the reason I asked was because I was curious whether or not your church says the Nicene Creed, right? Because um, the Nicene Creed uh, is, you know, one of the only, you know, sort of commonalities you have, sort of creedally speaking, between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, and then carried over into the Protestant traditions, right? So mm-hmm. Lutherans still say it, if, you know, at least traditional Lutherans like Missouri Synod ones, uh, more conservative Lutherans did, you know, the Reformed say it, Anglicans say it, and so on. Uh, so so in the Nicene Creed, this sort of broadly ecumenical statement, one of the only creeds, um, the only creed that is said in both East and West churches, uh, there's this statement that, you know, the son, that, that the Son of God is begotten, not made. Right. And I think plenty of being of the same essence as, or being of one essence with the father. Um, and, and I think one of the things that happens is a lot of people hear that, right. Or they read, you know, that God's only begotten son in John three sixteen, mm-hmm. And, and they're just like, I don't know what that word means, but okay. And they just kind of shrug and, <laughs> and accept it and not thinking about the sort of conundrum that really emerges, which is, that begotten, that's the same language used in like all the genealogies, Abraham begat yeah. Isaac, Yeah. right? And so um, the fact of the matter is it's, it's a causal word. Like it indicates that the father caused the son to exist, which, um, you know, for some people they go, well, it, I guess that must be talking about his humanity or something. And they just sort of shrug and move on not realizing that the way the term was understood historically in the church, as well as, you know, in, in certain other, you know, letters like Hebrews, it's pretty clearly an indication of the son being caused as God, right? Like his divine nature, him as divine is caused before he ever is incarnate. So he's the only begotten with reference to his divinity, and that raises some interesting questions. Like I thought God couldn't be caused, right? Mm. And that's really the syllogism that you read, um, which I'm guessing, you know, was probably hard for most people to follow, but if they go to the Substack, they can actually see it like laid out. Um, it's, it's an analytic breakdown of the Eunomian objection and the Eunomians were semi-Arians, which I'll say what that is. But then I, I do another version of that in part four where I restate in a different way. But the point was that people like Arius, Arius of Alexandria, one of the big heretics, right, of the early church, the the Arian dispute was the one that was so divisive that it required the first ecumenical council, right, this council with representatives from the in, entire church to sort of look at this and say, well, Arius is teaching one thing, Athanasius, his opponent is teaching another, you know, which one is the faith that we received? Basically, Arius's position was pretty common sense. You know, he just said, look, He's begotten. Whenever you cause something, there's like a time before you cause it, and then you cause it, and then there it is, right? So yeah. there must be a time when the Son of God didn't exist, um, when God was not a father, 
He's just God. He's not God the Father. He's just God. Then he decided he wanted a son, so he begat him. And uh, and then he came into being. And, you know, and there he is. Uh, and this is what sparked the controversy because people like Athanasius recognize, wait a second, if there's a time he was not and then he came into being, then you're actually, you're not saying he's God. You're saying he's a creature. He's actually created. Um, he's made. And, um, and Arius was kind of like, well, yeah, I guess he is. He's the greatest of all the creatures, right? Yeah. Most godlike of all the creatures. And what was interesting is while a lot of people recognize, okay, I, I'm pretty sure that's not like Orthodox Christian, there being little O Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christian thinking to say that the Son of God is a creature. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to say that he's God. Mm -hmm. But they kind of stop there and they don't realize that the Orthodox position contra Arius was, no, he's begotten, not made. And so you get into this weird thing where they're saying, no, he's caused, but not the way Arius is suggesting he's caused. And so they're still saying, no, he's caused, but he's not created. And that's what, if you pause for a minute, you go, well, how does that work? Yeah. Sounds yeah. a little weird. I've, I've done so, math. That's not how math works. One plus right. two is three. Yeah. Right. So, so anyway, this whole response was initially, and I, with each of these letters on Substack, I, I always open by giving the context, right? Who wrote to me? I, although I veiled her identity, who wrote to me, why, what occasioned it. And this was actually, this was a scholarly friend of mine, right? A friend who we did our PhDs together. Mm. Um, and so he was like, okay, look, man, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but just between you and me, I'm not sure I, I buy into the begotten, not made thing. He's like, I'm not sure it's coherent philosophically. And it wasn't the first time I'd heard that. I'd mentioned when you brought up the angels thing, uh, there's an article by Brian Leftow, he's a philosopher out at Oxford, mm -hmm. and he gives this whole thought experiment to try to explain why he just thinks it's incoherent, right? It's it's not a cogent, not a coherent uh, position to say that, you know, he's begotten, not made, that you're still just saying he's a creature. Yeah. Um, and so he opposes, he opposes the distinction. And so basically my, my friend was asking me for help. He, he was kind of saying, okay, I know that you buy into this and I trust you. I trust that you're a sharp guy. Help me out, understand how on earth this is a coherent distinction. And so I was like, okay, sure. And I started to write a letter, <laughs> which then turned into a journal article, which is now published in religious studies. Um, and so rather than actually sending him a proper letter, I just sent him the journal article. It's like, here it is. Uh, I wrote but, it and I'm um, not doing it twice. <laughs> right. But on Substack, I still tried to strip out some of the apparatus and make it a little more letter-like. And But I, I had to break it into four parts because it was just too long for Substack. Did you know that there um, was a word limit before you began? I didn't. Oh. I, no, I did not. <laughs> you hit control so C, control it V, it dang like, it. Yeah, he's like, no, no, this is way too long. It's like... I'm, then how long do I have to keep on hitting delete before you tell me it's Yeah, because then you have to reframe everything. Fine. How many That's times right. do I have to do this? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So. So I have a question that I thought about as I was driving home. Okay. So I think that often people, and this may be a dumb question, and if it is, tell me if it, if it is. Mm -hmm. um, so begotten for me. Okay, here we go. So if things are created, right, mm -hmm. um, for earth... And so that's what I want to focus on. 
how could there could 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 there be a begottenness before the creation of Earth? Because the universe doesn't say that every you know what I mean. Uh, maybe I'm not asking this correctly. I don't I don't think I am actually. Um, okay. Yeah. Give it another shot. I, I yeah I'm struggling. As I'm saying it out loud, I realize how ridiculous it sounds. And this is the downside <laughs> of not being able to edit the video because everyone will see how ridiculous <laughs> I am. Uh, okay, so begottenness. And creation only seems to matter for the salvation of people on Earth because Earth is the central focus point. Correct? Like we're talking about the divinity of of, of Jesus. Correct? Well, if you're asking me from the Eastern patristic stance, which is what I'm doing, not correct. But keep on going. So my question would be then: What do, <laughs> could there be a begottenness before the Earth's Earth's relation to begotten even matters? Um, if I let let me try to rephrase what I think you're you're trying to get at yeah right is it is it really that you're sort of suggesting that um well let's say that Arius is sort of right you know maybe maybe we ditch the word created but we still say begotten and Mm -hmm. it's still causal and we sort of do this like here's the line where all the creatures creatures are Mm -hmm. and then back here you know over here on this behind this line there's this other causal moment that we call begottenness. Is it something like that? No. Okay. Let me try to make it. So, uh, okay. So, uh, there's, there's life on Polaris and, um, mm-hmm. we realize crap, we need, a, a a corporeal form of the divine to come in and make things mm-hmm. right. And so I begotten it then. And now I come down to earth and I'm going to redo creation. And we've got our own narrative of that in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The begotten already happened. Oh, so now here it sounds like though you're you're associating begottenness with the taking on of the corporeal. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Maybe that's, that's wrong. That's yeah. So that's the part that's not not right. Okay. So um, so you know, so begottenness actually refers to. Let's pretend there. Let's do it this way. Let's pretend there is no incarnation ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. There's just the Holy Trinity. Um, begotten as well as spiration, like, or proceeding, right? The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, or if you're in the West, Father and the Son. Those are both causal terms. And so within their Trinitarian theology in the Eastern Fathers, which is what I'm focused on here, is um, the Father is uncaused. Nobody causes him. But he causes the Son and the Spirit to exist and to have his divine nature. That's what the claim is. And so even if there were no sort of redemption history in the sense of um, the Son of God becoming incarnate, the Son would still be begotten okay. in his divinity. That's the claim. Okay. And that's where Arius is trying to get his head around. How is he not then a creature? Doesn't he have to be a creature? And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is break down, and that's the same thing my friend was asking. It's the same thing Brian Leftow was you know, arguing in his article. What I'm trying to show is that there's pretty significant and philosophically robust, you know, arguments being made here for how that distinction does make sense. So, yeah. Okay. Should we talk about those? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We, we should. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) But but we want to make sure we're setting up the the problem, right? I mean, do you feel like you understand what, what the problem is? Yes. It was more of me playing devil's advocate of, well, the universe is however old the universe is and God Mm -hmm. exists at a faster speed than the speed of light. And um, so what does begotten mean? I had near Neil deGrasse Tyson in the back of my head saying, you know, that, 
if we look out a thousand years from now, we won't even know the light and what that illuminated when we look out over it, because that portion of space is already outside of our observable mm -hmm. understanding, which mm -hmm. is our understanding. So that's the reason I, I was just ruminating on things. Um, mm -hmm. So okay. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, may have derailed everything. Probably not. Um, let me try to refocus. So there is okay. a part on the second part of what okay. you've written that mm -hmm. you say the difficulty is that objects consist of more than just form. There is, for example, an enduring subject that sits beneath these forms, hypostasis, as mm -hmm. well as the substrate, substratum of matter in which forms come to be. And then you mm -hmm. go on to talk about something called epinoia, which I'm also not mm -hmm. good with. Um, and then you use hyperousios. I'm not saying that right either. What is all of those? What does that have okay. to do with anything? <laughs> what is all? Okay, so let's <laughs> let's try to let's try to make this a little more sort of like intelligible. So let me let me do it this way. <laughs> more intelligible. I told <laughs> you I was coming way. from a place of ignorance. <laughs> well, that's that's fine. So let's do it this way, right? So I think one of the there's there's several differences between making and beginning. Right. And that's really what all of this is about is trying to say, okay, when you say begotten, not made, what are the differences? Right. Is it just like that begotten happened a long time ago? Mm -hmm. um, is it, you know, wh what sort of, what sort of verbal voodoo are you doing when you make this sort of distinction? And my whole point is that there's pretty substantive distinction. So I think the, the main place where I would sort of begin to, to boil it down would be, and this gets to some of the things that you were just citing in there, the substratum of matter and formal properties and the hypothesis and things like that. So within the Aryan dispute, since that's that's where this really comes to the fore, um, there are certain arguments being leveled by Athanasius that I find this these were actually incidentally the first the first uh, aspects of patristic thought that clued me into everything that I talk about in this article. Um, Athanasius, he talks about, you know, that, that things are created out of nothing. And this is pretty standard. Most people like know that, that the pagans mm -hmm. thought that there's a demiurge and the demiurge sculpts out of pre-existing matter. It's already there. And he just sort of shapes it. Um, whereas the Christians think that God makes not just the stuff, but you know, the stuff out of which the stuff is made, right? Like that it's yeah. created out of nothing. It doesn't use pre-existing material. But Athanasius uses then this other technical distinction um, that I think a lot of people would miss if they were reading Athanasius, but sort of jumped out to me, which that Athanasius says that things um, move from non-being into being, right? And he talks about the natural state of a thing being non-being and it can retreat to non-being. So part of the background here is actually a problem in ancient philosophy, precedes the Christians, uh, of generation, Okay, so you and I accept just as a given that things come into being, right? Like there are plants that sort of move into existence and then deteriorate and go out of existence. There's animals that move into existence and go out of existence, right? Like this is mm -hmm. just common sense. We yeah. look around, we see it all the time. And we take that for granted, no big deal. Um, but in ancient philosophy, specifically the Eleatic school, they looked at that and they're like, I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever that that happens. And here's why, right? So I'll try to articulate the problem. The problem is they're like, okay, so let's say that, let's pick an example here. Let's pretend that that this, 
pen moves into existence, right? This is the thing that is generated, right? Mm -hmm. comes to be. And so we're going to say that this pen moves into being. They're like, well, here's the problem. Things either are or they're not, right? They either, there's no such thing as like, it sort of exists. They exist where they don't exist. And their point is, if it doesn't exist, then it, first of all, isn't an it at all. Second of all, it can't do anything, including move into existence. So you're kind of talking nonsense. But if you jump to the other side and you say, well, it already exists before it exists, well, then why does it need to move into existence in the first place? It already exists. Yeah. So their point is like, there's no coherent way of even formulating talk of generation. I understand that we all look around and we say it's happening, but they're like, it doesn't make any sense. And so there were several solutions to this, but you know, Aristotle's solution was that what he suggested is there actually is a middle between existence and nothingness. And he suggested that's potentiality. So you have the potential to be stronger than you are, right? You could go and do some weightlifting and usher that sort of potential into actuality. That potential is not nothing. It is something, mm. right? But it's less than concrete actual strength. And so Aristotle suggests that actually is an ontological middle, right? Middle between nothing and something. And according to Aristotle, that's what makes possible generation and corruption. Things aren't moving from nothing to something. They're moving from potentially something to actually something. Potential to actual. Um, like conceptually, I always like using the idea of a fabric, right? A shapeless bit of fabric where it's like, well, it's potentially spherical. It's potentially cubical. You know, you move around, it's potentially any number of shapes. And that potential becomes concretely real if I wrap it around a ball, right? Now it's, now it's potential to be spherical is actual, right? It's actually spherical. And so what Aristotle talked about is he talked about the distinction between form and matter, that potential, right? That potential to be something. That's what Aristotle thought matter really is. What mm. is matter? It's really just the potential to be stuff. Um, and then what happens is when it manifests concrete properties, sphericality, for example, these drawing on, you know, his teacher Plato's terms, these are forms, right? Formal properties. So we identify them with abstract nouns, right? Uh, sphere, right? We can talk about this sort of abstract nature of sphere um, and sphericality manifests in the matter. And that's where that potential to be spherical moves from potential to concretely real. And what we call corruption or degeneration, right? Is just where that then retreats from matter and it just goes back to potential. Huh. So that's the basic concept that Aristotle used in order to solve that problem. Well, one of the other terms that Aristotle used for potential was non-being. And the reason he used non-being is because it's softer than nothing, right? It's just not quite being, right? You know, mm. it's not being relative to things that are being, right? Uh, and so when Athanasius says that if... Arius's son of God is created, right? He says, then he moved from non-being to being. He moved from a potential being to an actual being. Now, you might say, okay, so what? Let's just pretend that's true, right? Let's just pretend Arius is right and that's true. So what? Well, this is what gets you to a critical distinction in, in Athanasius. 
Athanasius suggests that that right there is the dividing line between God and creatures. Mm. If you want to know what makes a creature a creature and not God, we come into being. And that's why we're susceptible to mutation, because that first movement is a mutation. We transition from something we weren't to something we are. Mm. That's why we're susceptible to corruption, deterioration, retreating from what we are back to, you know, relative non-being. Yeah. Uh, and, and he goes through all these sort of entailments that he says, that's just what creatures are. And so in Athanasius's mind, what he suggests is there's this dividing line between God and creatures. And on the one side are all the things that come into being, angels, humans, and if Arius's son of God came into being, then Arius's son of God. And on the other side is God, who fully is what he is, you know, and doesn't transition into being or doesn't become something he wasn't or so on and so forth. Uh, now, there's significant, you know, there's significant points for his understanding of the Christian gospel and things like that that I'd be happy to talk about. But I'd say the first starting point for really getting our heads around what's going on in this discussion is exactly that, that. Uh, Athanasius, and then, as I point out in in other publications and things like that, other other Eastern fathers with him, they really see their the the gulf between God and creatures to be that right mm. that creatures are things that come into being, and then from coming the fact that that we come into being unfolds all these other metaphysical entailments, like that we're mutable, changeable, like that we're corruptible. Um, like that we're in sense, uh, some sense temporal because there's a before and after to our existence yeah. that we're finite and circumscribable because our existence wasn't, you know, infinite. It, it had a certain definite starting point and so on. So anyway, there's a host of that were material, including the angels, right? Yeah. Um, all of these things start to naturally unfold from that. Um, and that's where Athanasius sort of freaks out because he's like, Arius, what you're proposing when you say that there was not a time that he existed and then he came into being you have now definitively placed him on this side of the god creature divide and he's really ontologically speaking no different than the rest of us and athanasius thinks that's why arius's christ can't save any of the creatures because mm. we need something that's not a creature to save us it's that time of the episode give me 30 seconds or so i'll be right back Thinking on being and non-being, there's no value in being either then in that mindset. Like the, the, the value, I guess, would be the consciousness awareness that you are being. So, so in terms of like the value of things, right? Um, the idea is that, that when you talk about something being good or bad or greater or lesser or something like that, there's certain targets, right? So think about it. Think about it this way. Um, there's only one way one correct way to draw a circle, right? Um, to draw a perfect circle, there's one way to do it. All the points have to be an equal distance from a common century, you know, and that flowing circumference. There are an infinite number of ways to misdraw a circle. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, um, and the reason that's significant is because if change is arbitrary, then there is no better or worse change, right? It's just change. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's progress, if it's moving toward, there has to be a target, right? That you're getting closer toward. 
And so in this sense, what they would suggest is that non-being or non-being is an evil, right? The potentiality of matter is an evil. In fact, Gregory of Nyssa says it's good insofar as if you're a corrupt person who needs to repent, you know, that potential to be other than you are is the very thing that makes it possible for you to repent and become good, you yeah. know, so you should be thankful for it, <laughs> Yeah. right? Um, so, you know, non-being in itself isn't, you know, good or evil. It just sort of is. It's this sort of ontological potential to be things. Um, what makes something a movement good or evil is how, whether it's moving toward its target, right? So in human nature, right, whatever the proper formation of human nature is, the closer we move toward that, if the movement is toward that trajectory, it is a good movement. If it's a retreat or divergence away from it, it's a corrupt movement. Same is true with, you know, plants or with animals or whatever. So the terms good or, you know, generation, corruption, well-formed, malformed, normal, abnormal, all these terms indicate some sort of terminus toward which you're driving. Mm -hmm. And, um, and basically the idea is that movements are deemed to be good or bad relative to that, that terminus. Yeah. So not that, not that I necessarily believe this, but it's the question that sprang to mind. What do I care about whether or not um, the sun is a begotten creature for a specific purpose if so the purpose is the same thing anyway? Like, like I, I, I create an arrow to shoot a target. What do I care? The point was to shoot the target or the point was for sanctification or salvation or theosis or whatever word you want to wrap around that. Why does it matter? Okay, so to answer this question, I have to tell you how wildly different the Eastern patristic concept of Christianity is from probably Christianity as you think of it. Okay. Um, so let's, let's go back to this one uh, point that I just mentioned about the fact that, you know, every creature of metaphysical necessity is mutable, right? Because right, this is what Athanasius says explicitly. And then Alexander of Alexandria says, and the and by, Nicaea says, by mutable, you mean changeable, right? Changeable, okay. right? So the term, the Greek term is aleotos, right? And it just means to become something you weren't, right? Uh, so, okay. so in this case, you're potentially a human and now you're actually a human, right? That's, that's a change, right? <laughs> I did it. <laughs> um, I did it. Right. Uh, so, and Aristotle in his physics says this explicitly that the first moment of a thing's existence begins with a mutation, right? A transition into being, right? Mm -hmm. And so since mutation or, you know, aleutos, what it indicates is this, you know, change in ontology, this shifting ontology. Um, since what a creature is, is something that moves from non-being into being, that means that to be a creature is to be mutable, Right. That's that's there's no way of doing it otherwise. And in fact, Athanasius and the councils and all that, they're really clear. They're like, not even God can make an immutable creature. Like that's like talking about him making square circles, you know, or something like that. They're like, no, it's not even a coherent statement. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that's important though is because change, right? Mutability entails the possibility of change for good, but it also entails the possibility of change for bad, right? The the very potential to be otherwise is what underwrites the potential to improve or to degenerate. And so mutability, the flip side of that is that every creature is also a metaphysical necessity corruptible. Okay. We can deteriorate. We can die in the case of spiritual or moral beings. Um, we can cling to God and here keep in mind 
Uh, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but basically for the Eastern fathers, they think of holiness, virtue, perfection as uniquely divine traits. So when those are manifest in creatures, that's because the creature is somehow participating in the divine nature. Okay. So, um, so you become those things by clinging to God or you retreat from God and you become spiritually and morally corrupt, right? Like that's kind of how that works too. Mm-hmm. So every creature is corruptible. So let's do a thought experiment, right? In Christianity, it's probably, it's pretty common to think of, well, what's the human condition that, you know, Christianity exists to remedy. And it's like, well, we sin and there's this judge and he's going to judge us at some point, And that's a problem because we broke the law, right? That's kind of how Western Christianity tends to think about it. But let's, let's put aside the whole sin thing for a minute. Let's just say that, um, you know, God makes the world, nobody sins, right? So, so far things are trucking along pretty good. Nobody's sinning. Mm-hmm. Nobody's violating the law. Here's the problem. Of metaphysical necessity, we're all susceptible to corruption. We can all screw the whole thing up at any moment. We can plummet the whole cosmos. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> right. No pressure. Just white knuckle it a little, a few more millennia. <laughs> right. No big deal. And 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 in many ways, um, for the Eastern Fathers, when they look at Christianity, they see the creature. They see this not just as a human condition. That's why I'd said the whole thing that you'd said as about salvation being about humans isn't the way they think about it, actually. It's, it's about the cosmos as a whole. Um, creatures, the creaturely condition is that we're all susceptible to corruption. And that's this threat, this time bomb looming over the head of all of creation all the time just because of what we are. Uh, it looms over the head of angels, over humans, dogs, cats, you know, lions, tigers, and bears. And so, like, the... and and. And that is the thing that they think Christianity exists to remedy. Now, yes, corruptibility, right, has manifested into actual corruption in our circumstance. Mm -hmm. But that's a manifestation of the problem. The problem was there before it ever happened. And so the big question that they have, the big question they have is how do you ever escape it? And their answer is that the only way to escape corruption is to participate in or partake in the only nature that's incorruptible. And so they notice throughout scripture how often Paul will talk about the resurrection from the dead being the putting off of corruption for incorruption, or Peter talking about the corruption that has come upon the world due to sin and that we escape that corruption by partaking of the divine nature. And so in their mind, what Christianity is there to offer, the only lifeline, the only hope the creatures have is to somehow participate in God, participate in divinity, to partake of God's own incorruption, immortality, unturnability, it's moral, spiritual, unturnability, and become, you know, good, right, virtuous, etc. And that's the only hope of escaping that. Now, if we hold on to that for a minute, then what you realize is that um, the whole point of the incarnation in Christianity is to offer you that. Mm. So what the incarnation is, is not hey, we need a sacrifice in order to remedy this whole judicial problem that we've got in the future. Christianity is about our corrupted species, the creator, the son of God, the logos, right? The agent of creation enters our species in order to heal it and repair it and make it incorruptible from the inside so that that lifeline back to God is, you know, sort of reconnected and that we through union with him and the sort of sacramental life of repentance and so on, imitation of him can somehow 
partake of his incorruption and basically be remade, putting off our corruption for incorruption. Mm. Now, if you look at Christianity in those terms, all of a sudden Arius undoes the whole thing. Because if Arius puts the son of God on the creaturely side of that divide and makes him a mutable, corruptible creature, he can't fix, he can't help any of the other creatures. He's in the same boat as us, even if he never sins. And so that shift, you have to have that shift in how they see the Christian faith, how they see the creaturely condition, how they see what Christianity offers in order to understand why Arianism was a big deal and why it was critical to say, no, 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 he's not made, because if he's made, he comes into being, then he's mutable, corruptible, etc. He's begotten, and that's something different. I'm curious, and you did not write about it, uh, and maybe it's because it's irrelevant to the conversation, where does, uh, so everyone talks about God and the Father, and mm-hmm. then there's the Son, and then the Spirit never gets spoken about. So where does, is there is there a begottenness mindset about Spirit at all? Is there any any yeah. place at the table for that part of the conversation? Yeah, it's not begottenness, right? Because he's the only, only begotten, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's still causal, right? So the language of the Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? And then the whole dispute about proceeds from the Father and the Son, that procession language or spiration or outbreathing language is another causal term. And so all the same questions you'd raise about the son of God yeah. are just as relevant to the spirit. And I actually, I think I, I don't know if I'd survived in the sort of letter version on Substack, but in the, in the published version, I actually have a footnote where I say, by the way, all of these arguments can just be applied to the Holy spirit too. It's just as relevant to that. The same problems begin to emerge. Um, and incidentally, this is, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole filioque, but but suffice it to say, this is uh, uh, oh, sorry, I said filioque, and most people probably don't know what that means. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? Or more importantly, I don't, I'm not as concerned with what it means because you don't want to go into it. I am curious how you spell it because I don't even know how to Google that for the transcript. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, it's F I L Philly I O Q U E. Yeah, there's no way I would have. There's no way I would have wrote that down. Uh, is that right? I think I spelled that right. So it's 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 filios, <laughs> right? Uh, which is son in okay. Latin, and okay. then when you add quay to the end of a word in Latin, that's and, right? So it's and the son, and there's no the because Latin doesn't have definite articles. So filio quay. In the Nicene Creed, when it was first written, the original version, it says, uh, "And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified." The Latin iteration Rome adds to it the filioque, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this becomes doctrinally one of the big splits between the East and West, even though it's very clear the division is is far more than just that. But the point is, like, when when you see, for example, the only thing I was going to say just about that is, for example, when Christ talks about sending the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, in the East, sending the Holy Spirit, um, you know, on his apostles— you know, is totally different than procession, right? When you're talking about procession, you're talking about the causation, the eternal causation of the spirit by the father, just like you're talking about the eternal beginning, you know, of the son, you know, you're not talking about the incarnation, right? So in the same way with the spirit, procession is speaking about the eternal causation of the spirit, not the sending of the spirit at Pentecost. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to change gears, ask two other questions unrelated to the Substack article in question, mostly because mm-hmm. I think I would need five or six hours to work through a tenth of my questions, um, okay. of, of which there were many. 
Um, but there are, and and I only say this because I know that we have a stop coming. And so yeah, yeah. there are two questions that I've asked everyone. I don't believe I ever okay. asked them of you. Maybe I did back in the day. I honestly don't remember, and I'm too okay. lazy to I, find I out. We don't remember either. I'm too lazy to find out. Um, so I, I am curious on this though, because I think church for you has a different definition than church over you know, in the Western sub subset of, of, of proselytization and and the way that we we do church on a on a Sunday or whatever the day is. So. Mm-hmm. What are some things forward thinking that you feel as though congregants of the church, capital C church, should be intentionally allowed to talk about without fear of repercussions? And to mm-hmm. not do so will damage people or the church as a whole. Oh, well, I think I'd, I'd probably answer that in two different ways. Um, I mean, the one is I think I think all of the topics should be up for grabs. I mean, if you you I mean, you know, the film Becoming Truly Human uh, you know that my whole journey toward orthodoxy into orthodoxy had everything to do with um, delving deep into philosophical and theological history, um, and it was as I think I talked about this a little bit in our in our first interview way back when. Um, what I mentioned that that actually was the very thing that pushed me away from Western Christianity, and I embraced the God of the philosophers, and I became a student of, you know, Kant and Leibniz and modern philosophy, and then sort of, anyway, on and on it went until I sort of worked my way back around and ended up in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but I think, you know, I questions are the sort of thing, if you have a good guide, right, it's always hard when you ask good questions, but you don't have a good guide <laughs> to work through answers. That's why it's important that you have some good guides to help through answers. Just Google. But yeah, just That's all I need. No, no, don't just, um, but, <laughs> but, um, oh Lord. Uh, but, uh, but um, no, I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of the questions. So if you look at, I'm, I'm a big fan of hard questions, right? And so if, for example, you looked at my, not my sub stack, but just my my publishing stuff. I spent a lot of time with Immanuel Kant. Kant supposedly the all destroyer of metaphysics and the enemy of Christianity and all this sort of stuff. Um, and and you know I I did a whole article on Kant's objection to divine revelation. Right? He thinks if God were to reveal Himself, you know, we wouldn't we couldn't even know it's God talking. All this sort of stuff like that. And I I grapple with that. I'm like, okay, let's let's hear it, Kant. Right? Like let's hear the case and grapple with it. And so I really do think. Um, as somebody who's confident that, you know, Christianity is true, um, I think all the questions are great and up for grabs, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I think they all have answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think wrestling with them is fruitful, right? And, and so, like, I, I think that's true. Now, I think there's other things, though, that are best wrestled with not in a public forum, but in a private forum, right? Um you know, you brought up, you know, sexual issues or something like that. Um, on the one hand, there's sort of like the, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but just suffice it to say that in our context, it tends to be a sort of sociopolitical issue that then like is all about the public forum dispute. And my main question is, let's, let's pretend for a moment um, that, you know, I'm homosexual and uh, and let's pretend for a moment that I have a conscience problem with that. And I'm like, I don't know, should I have a conscience problem? Should I not? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I deal with this spiritually? What do I do? I don't think the public square is the most fruitful place for that. Um, my spiritual father, speaking from an Orthodox perspective, my spiritual father is the one who is 
the best person to address that because it's it's about me, right? It's not a, it's not about the public square. It's about me. I'll give you an example of one such sort of very orthodox story. Um, there's a story of this drunken monk, right? Where there was this one monk who uh, so many people looked at and they were like, oh, he's such an embarrassment to the hmm. monastery because every day he's smashed. <laughs> and like all the people in the town know it and all the other monks know it. And it's so scandalous. And what do we do with this guy? Eventually, eventually he dies. The other monks are like, it's about time. We can now get our reputation back. And um, and one of, one of the things that uh, that happens is, uh, that, uh, at the, at the, or at the, you know, at the funeral, the abbot of the monastery talks about how this was a very good monk. And everybody's like, what is he talking about? A good monk. The guy was a, a they drank drunk. together. They definitely <laughs> right. drank together. Right. And, <laughs> and his hands, and he tells the story that this guy, when he was an infant was born in a war torn area and his parents had to smuggle him across, you know, these sort of enemy line type things. And the only way to keep him silent as an infant was to feed him vodka. And so they, he was a mm. raging alcoholic mm. from infancy forward. Came by it honest. And it, yeah. <laughs> and he came to the monastery and he came to the monastery and the, um, and the abbot was like, I mean, he's like, he was drinking like something absurd. I don't know. Like, you know, uh, you know, six, you know, six things, 12 packs of beer, or like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. something uh, completely outrageous per day. And the abbot said, um, for your obedience, I want you to drink one less beer a day for a year. And so he did. And then the next year he's like, I want you to drink one less beer a day for a year. Uh, and he did, and he kept on doing that. And he's like, and when he died, he was down to only six beers a day. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's progress. And, he was an and he was an obedient monk. Right. Yeah. Now this is a very sort of orthodox story. It's a very orthodox way of thinking about spirituality and things like that. Um, but it's part of the reason why, you know, a discussion in the public square about drunkenness and that drunkenness is sin and all these sorts of things, that's not going to help that guy. What that guy needed is a wise spiritual father, like his habit that he had. Uh, and thankfully he had one. Right. Mm. And I think what oftentimes happens in the public discussion of so many things that are deeply personal and deeply relevant to a person's soul is that the person that they're most relevant to gets lost in the discussion. Mm. And so anyway, I, that's where I would say, I'd say all the questions, all the discussions are good. All of them are up for grabs. I, I love good, hard questions and wrestling with them. But I also think that there's a need for wisdom of the appropriate time and place and people to have those discussions with. I suppose that would be my answer. Yeah. So I said two questions. I have three because the other one, this one should be quick. So at the beginning of the four-part series, you say, I don't know if this is a good argument, but I will say that the gentleman is now a, an, an Orthodox convert. So what was he? What was he prior? <laughs> Did I say I didn't know if it was if it was a good no? Argument? I am I am implying that, but you definitely oh, okay, say. Okay. Hold on, I'll find it now because I don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Let's see. Right. Um, here's what I send in I mean, the final I think, manuscript. I think, a, I think it's a good argument. Yeah. You say That's I don't know whether or not my friend was persuaded, but he's now an Orthodox convert. So. Oh, is that what I said? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what was okay. he prior? Um, I think he was like Plymouth Brethren. I don't even know what that means. Um, yeah. Okay. There's, it's, there's I, a lot of I, denominations I, though. Yeah, you're many, right. Many, it's many. pretty, it's a very conservative Protestant, um, 
you know, denomination. He was actually ordained, I think, within it too. Huh. Huh. So anyway. Fun. Fun. So when you try to put words to whatever God is, what do you say to that? Oh, so um, this goes to, to a topic that I find deeply fascinating. Okay, so... Uh, again, I'm always going to speak from an Eastern perspective here because I know that's kind of what you that's what you want to know because I'm that's my perspective. No, I just right? want your answer. If it happens right, right. to be my Eastern, answer, that's fine. fine. I, I don't right. care what perspective it is. Uh, so, um, so, and this kind of goes to one of the things that I talked about in the article where I talked about the difference between epinoia and hyperusias and all these sorts of fancy terms like that. Um, there's a tendency to talk about God as if he's, you know, he's beyond, right? And he's incomprehensible and we only speak negatively about him. And there's certainly like patristic precedents for that where they talk about this great cloud of unknowing and you ascend into it and right, you leave behind all these sorts of things of the sensible world and there's plenty of stuff like that. But there's this other aspect of it that I think is so critical in the doctrine of God. Um, Again, this is something that's central in Eastern thinking, but it's so often lost in the West. Um, is this distinction between the essence and the energies of God. Uh, and so the energies is this, this concept that um, it emerges from Aristotle. He's originally develops it in reference to the unmoved mover because he needs a term to describe how God does stuff, but doesn't mutate, right? Because mm-hmm. he too has God on that other side of the non-mutative line. Yeah. And so he draws a distinction between kinesis, which is sort of this incomplete mutative sequential activity, and energia, which is sort of this perfect, complete activity. And um, Alexandrian Jews pick up on that, and they're like, they think this is really useful. They like this good way of talking about God. Um, And so they start to use the term too, but they draw a distinction. Philo of Alexandria in particular draws a distinction uh, that Aristotle doesn't draw, which is the difference between God's essence and his energies. And, um, and he draws this because of the conversation that Moses has with God, where he's like, show me your glory. And he's like, you can't see my face. No man can see my face and live, but I'll show you my back. And Philo's like, well, what the heck does that mean? And Philo <laughs> um, concludes that God's face is the essence of God, this sort of abyss of unarticulated divinity that we can't possibly stare into or grasp because our mind thinks in sort of finite categories. Um and he's like, but the energies are his back, right? These things that exude from, you know, the nature of God. And so now that's probably sounds really all very abstract, but the analogy that I like to use to sort of articulate, you know, like sort of help explain this is let's pretend, you know, I've got, I've got a musician here. It's Bach reanimated from the dead. Right. And so we've got Bach here and I'm like, Hey, so that you ever heard of Bach? And you're isn't like, no, isn't I, Bach the one that was deaf? Uh, no, that's Beethoven. Okay. It's Beethoven, right. Uh, but but it's like, you've never heard of Bach, Seth? Like, oh, he's a great musician. And I start to say all this laudatory stuff, right? Oh, he's so good, you know, oh, so brilliant, so creative. And you're like, yeah, okay, that's great. I can, I've learned how highly you think of him, but I don't really know too much what that actually means mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, um. Well, since I can't open up his chest and show you the unarticulated creativity that sits there, I'll give him a piano. And now listen to him. And then he just plays a movement, then he plays another movement and so on. Now, every movement he plays is an expression or an articulation of that creativity, right? And each one, like, they don't exhaust it. 
right? One movement doesn't exhaust the creativity. You can play a different one, different one. And so there's a distinction, but there's still a connection, right? The, the articulation is an extension or an expression of the creativity, a finite circumscribed articulation, uh, but it is not sort of the unarticulated creativity as such. And this is really kind of how at least this aspect of the essence energies distinction comes down. That yes, it's true. When we talk about God and who God is, they use the term hyperousios, which means he's above forms, right? So unlike triangles, which you have definite properties like three-sidedness that you can wrap your mind around, uh, God doesn't have any of those definite properties, right? He is this sort of abyss of goodness, you know, and that, you know, this infinite something, uh, negative terms. And this is yeah. where you get apophatic yep. language, right? Mm -hmm. Negative language about God. But a lot of people will stop there and they'll just talk about this negative language about what God is and you can't get your mind around him. But in the essence energies distinction, they actually suggest, but the energies you can grasp, just like with Bach, yeah, I can't stare into his chest at the abyss of creativity that's unarticulated, but I can listen to him play something. And they suggest that that's, that's true of me, right? That's true of you. Like I, you, you know, we spend hours and hours and hours together. I still can't like stare at your unarticulated nature, right? I, I get to know who you are through how it's expressed, how it's articulated. And so in this way, what you start to see is, well, how do you come to know God? How do you think about God? You think about him primarily, you learn it through how, God articulates himself in providence, in mercy, in love, in his activities, in these energies yeah. that exude from him, holiness, and so on. Um, and there's another application of that that I'd, I'd like to mention, but I don't know if I don't want to, we've only, I, Go I don't want to eat Go for it. Okay. Go for it. So um, here's another thing that I think is sort of really fascinating about how the Eastern fathers talk about God. Uh, and I mentioned this in uh, one of the letters. I wrote a letter to a woman who lost several children. And I don't know if you saw that one in the Substack list, but uh, in there I talk about this one at greater length. So I'll just sort of do a cursory version of it. But in Western thinking, there's a tendency to think, because there's this sort of tendency in the Enlightenment, uh, in modernity, uh, to think of the world in these sort of mechanical terms like a clock, there's a tendency to think of the spiritual stuff as like outside of it. And especially, you know, in modernity, it's not even clear that there's any angels or anything like that. So there's like, there's maybe just God outside of it. And you have this sort of God world divide. And so when you talk about God showing up or revealing himself, there's this tendency to almost think about God revealing himself um, like he would show up as an object in the room. Right. And so if you and I are sitting here going, where is God? God, where are you? We'd, we'd be looking for like an orb or something, an object that shows up that, oh, like here he is as this object. Um, and while you may have theophanies, right, things like that in the Old Testament and things like that, that that do sort of fit something akin to that, one of the things that's really fascinating in the Eastern Fathers is the idea that the primary mode by which God shows up and manifests itself is actually in and through creatures. Mm. So there's very few instances in scripture where God shows up unmediated, right? Mm -hmm. Usually shows up 
in and through a prophet, in and through an angel, right? In some elements, or you yeah. know, in some of these cases, in theophanies, yeah, a bush, a donkey, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that, but when you consider that, um, I mean, one of the analogies that's sometimes used to talk about this sort of concept of like mediation in the East, like these sort of mediated experiences, is this analogy of metal and fire. And this sort of goes to another aspect of the divine energies. Uh, the divine energies, one of the things that people like Philo uh, developed with the concept was the idea that the energies are communicable, right? So how do you explain a demoniac having knowledge or strength that he shouldn't have? Well, he's being energized mm -hmm. by a demon, right? How do you explain, you know, a prophet who is, you know, able to do superhuman things, right? Uh, perform miracles. Well, he's being energized by God, right? That's, that's the sort of concept. And they would use one of the favorite analogies they would use is metal and fire. Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give me one second. They won't be quiet. Okay. okay. <laughs> they scared me though. <laughs> <Stop that>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, so one of the favorite analogies to talk about this sort of like communicable energy, right, was uh, the analogy of metal and fire. Mm -hmm. And so if you take metal and you stick it in fire and it heats up, it gets to the point that it glows and it burns and you can take it out and, you know, you can burn stuff. It illuminates, you know, it's, it's got these energies in it that express the nature of fire. Now, the idea is it's still metal. Mm -hmm. Right. But something of the nature of fire, the energies that express the nature of fire have taken up residence in yeah. the metal. It is yeah. now uh, it is now energized by it. And that's how they tended to to think about this concept of communicable energies. And so the idea is that, yes, the energies of God um, in the West, what is typically called the attributes, but in the East, they're energies. Right. His holiness, his righteousness, you know, all these sorts of, uh, you know, is justness is mercy all these sorts of things like these are all energies in corruption immortality yeah right are things that can be communicated to creatures and in fact that's part of the hope of the gospel is yeah. that we can somehow have those communicated to us but one of the things that comes out of this is also um what i find so fascinating is that in the east this point that they're communicable also goes to one of the ways in which the Eastern fathers talk about how we're supposed to, in an unfallen, uncorrupted world, experience God, see God, encounter God, know God. Um, let's take our metal, and rather than just it being generic, you know, metal rod or something like that, let's say it's a branding iron, right? And so I heat it up, I take it over to a cow, I burn the cow, right? Well, um, is the cow, like, how far does that fire feel from the cow? Right, like presumably the fire feels pretty close. Yeah, and the reason yeah. is because the metal is actually now a conduit. Right, it's actually brought the nature of fire near to the cow. The cow is actually experiencing the fire now. How it's experiencing it is mediated, shaped by the metal, right? But it's still experiencing the fire. That's the nature of fire it is experiencing. Well, the, the reason this is important is because in the Eastern Fathers, what they see is that us as icons of God, angels as, um, it's tough to find passages where they actually call them icons, but following their rationale, it would seem they are icons of God too. We actually exist in order to be conduits of God. 
Like you exist as an icon of God in order to participate in the attributes of God, just like the branding iron. Mm. And so the idea would be that in an unfallen world, a world as it's supposed to be, I don't find God in between you and me. I look at you as an energized icon of God and I see God. So just like, yes, it would be shaped by you, just like my branding iron shapes how the cow experiences the fire, but it's still really experiencing the fire. And so in you, I'd be really experiencing God. It would really be God that I'm Hmm. looking at, that I'm hearing, that I'm encountering. And and the reason I think that's so uh, fascinating is because in the West, mediator, and I think it's probably because of the legal connotations, tended to think in terms of a separation between, right? Talk to my attorney, don't talk to me, right? <laughs> That's how we tend to think about mediation or mediators in the West. But in the East, mediators like the angels and humans and things like that, they actually bring the subject near. So rather than standing between and being a hindrance to the thing, you actually bring the thing near, just like the branding iron mediates fire to the cow. So you, as an icon of God, is meant to mediate God to other things in creation. The angels are made to mediate God to the rest of creation. And so there's a real sense in which providence, as it's conceived by the Eastern Fathers, is actually um, that we should see and encounter God in one another. And incidentally, this would explain why God seems very hidden when all the conduits and all the icons refuse to cooperate and we sort of shut that down. Huh. Uh, yeah, God, yeah. God would seem very hidden and very absent Yeah, because yeah. you're supposed to be the means by which I encounter him. I'm supposed to be the means by which you encounter him. So we're at both times, both the, the person being branded and the branding iron at both times. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. 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 Where you have a direct, yes, that's right, where you're being energized by God, but then being energized. Um, I mean, so like in in my tradition, we have elders, and elders are not like people who sit on a board or something like that. Elders are actually, it's charismatic office, where these are usually like wonder-working living saints, right? People like Elijah's who walk around, Elder Paisios being one that you could look up. And we have an unbroken chain of these all throughout uh, our history. But you listen to these stories um, where you sit down with the elder and, you know, he tells you secret knowledge about yourself. He performs a miracle. He does. If I'm having a conversation with somebody like that, God doesn't seem very absent in that moment. Mm. In fact, he feels very present. If an angel were to show up here and start talking to me, I presume God would not feel very absent (laughs) in that moment. He would feel very present. But that's what's supposed to be normal right? Like that's what the norm is supposed to be. So there's a real sense in which the way in which we currently exist, where it's like, I can't see God, where is God? That's, that's not the way things are supposed to be. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to read, I'm going to paraphrase what you just said, because uh, it, it's what okay. came into my mind. So the way we're supposed to be is the way that it is when the veil is torn and we've intentionally then just erected new veils. Um, is that, is that fair? That's uh, yeah. I mean, I would say that's, that's, Kind of fair. I, I know I'd say it's fair and sort of the veil language doesn't, it sort of loses the mediator language, but yeah, there's really supposed yeah. to be a sense in yeah. which, yes, yeah. like just like people who saw Moses and his face is glowing with yeah. divine glory and they're yeah. seeing the glory of God right in Moses's face mm. and they're freaked out. 
because that's not normal. Yeah, people don't do that. <laughs> and he's got to like put a veil up, right? <laughs> to use your veil language. Yeah. Um, that would actually be, yeah, I mean, if you want to combine the two, right? That's yeah. kind of your veil language, right? Yeah. Is that the way people saw Moses, that's what you should see all the time throughout mm. all of creation. Mm. But we're all walking around with veils. Over time, huh, you know? yeah. So you talked about the Substack. Where do you want people to go to do whatever it is that they should be doing as it relates to the work that you're doing? Oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if somebody wants to know what I think about things or they think any of the insights I can offer are helpful or whatever, I'd say just subscribe to Substack, right? So um, do I have to say it again or will you post, no, a I'll link post or it or something? I'll today? post okay. it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, I mean, these letters were, I, I, sometimes I think when people are looking at them, they're, they're treating them. I'll hear people refer to these as articles and it's like, these are not articles. These are literally, I sit down to write an answer to a question going off the cuff to somebody. And my intent in the original letter is always to help the person. Right. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm always helpful, but you know, that's the intent at least uh, help clear something else, uh, clear something up, bring clarity, bring insight. And so the hope is that, you know, there are other people who might benefit you know, from those as well. And so I would say anybody who wants to um, see if it's beneficial, subscribe, right? If you want to support my work, you can be a paid subscriber. Can you submit a question um, there? Is there like a button that says, shoot me a question? I, I ha- There's not a button on there, but if you go to my website, there is a place where there's, there's a contact form. And that's normally where people who I don't know send me questions. Yeah. Um, and so people can do that. Now I can't, given how long the responses are that I write. <laughs> it usually takes a while for me to get back. To, I mean, sometimes I knock it out in, in a single sitting, you know, the next day, but um, I know I'm, I'm working my way through a couple of, you know, questions that I just got yeah. that'll end up on the sub stack eventually. So people are free to write to me um, and ask me a question. Um, and they might, they might hear back unless of course I start Thanks to you now get like a hundred questions. <laughs> that'll well, end up just picking which questions I like, but <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not intending to create problems. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Nathan, as always, man, I, I really enjoy talking to you. Um, yeah, it's fun. Thank you. For um, thanks me. for humoring me, uh, as I ramble through a question. Um, that's the downside <laughs> of not scripting them. So, yeah. well, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so well. good. Good, yeah. good, good. Well, the only thing I would say is I feel like we sort of set up the problem mm-hmm. of begotten, not made. Yeah. And I never really said much about the answer. We can do can part I try two. To, can I try to summarize an answer in like three minutes? <laughs> you could take longer than three if you need, but sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I have five hours left on this memory card. So Okay, let's... well, I don't have five hours <laughs> left on the clock, but I'll... Um, I mean, I, I think, I think we sort of, I think we established pretty clearly the whole like mutability and mm-hmm. difference between God and creatures and why that, that issue is so significant. What I just say is that if you go, if you know that, if you hold on to that and you recognize this sort of difference between the mutable, right? This is what a creature is, right? It comes into being, that means it's mutable, et cetera, et cetera. You look at that as entailing corruption. Now you see this creaturely problem and you see that the hope of, you know, creatures is to partake of this divine nature that's on the other side of that line. That's incorruptible, that's immortal, that's immutable and so on. Um, And that's why it's critical 
to affirm that the son of God, if Christianity is really going to offer hope to people, um, then it's critical that the son of God actually has that nature, right? That he's on that divine side of that line. I would say that all the different answers I work through um, in the article, just by way of summary, they highlight all the sort of differences between God and creatures that inform the begotten, not made distinction. Mm. So what I go through in there, for example, is I enumerate all some of the metaphysical entailments of being a creature. And then what I do is I talk about the negative, the apophatic descriptions of eternal generation that they offer, right? He is not material. He does not come into being, you know, he is, you know, not finite, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's all the negative things, which are really just to say, it's not that, um, and then there's a few positive things that are said in there, like that it's eternal, mm-hmm. like that it's analogous to a father giving his same nature to his son. Um, and then uh, and then the sort of the third section, I think, is where I talk about a modal difference, which is the differences that they they take it to be sort of natural for the father to be the father, right? It's mm-hmm. inconceivable that the father would not be get the son, where as the same isn't true of making me, right? I mm. could not exist, right? That's yeah. a sort of free choice on the part of God. Not to say that they're denying free choice with regard to generation, but, um, but you know, I might not have existed. The same can't be said for any of the members of the Trinity. Um, and then, uh, and conceptually, what that really looks like in their mind is to say, uh, one of the analogies that I think is just a really helpful sort of, placeholder to hold on to is that they use the analogy of the sun, the S U N right. Sun, not this being the son of God, but the sun like in the sky. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, well, let's, let's pretend one of the main problems that they see conceptually happening is that people like Arius think in terms of causality in only one way, what scholastics would call per accidents causation, which is that it's sequential. This happened, yeah. then this happened, then this happened. Whereas per se causation is coterminous, right? Um, my cup is currently suspended on the desk and the top of the desk is suspended by the legs, right? That's a cause effect relationship and it's ongoing, right? They're, they're coterminous with each other. And so their whole point is that when you're talking about begetting in a creaturely context, I beget a son, it's per accidents, right? I beget him, I can drop dead of a heart attack, my son still exists, right? But in the Trinity, when you're talking about the causal relations there, they're per se. And so using the sun analogy, let's pretend for a minute that the sun always existed, right? The cosmos didn't come into being. It's always been. It always will be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Would its light always exist? Sure. Would its heat always exist? Sure. But would its light and its heat be causally dependent upon it on on the sun and the answer is yes Mm. and so this is sort of a picture of this sort of eternal causation an eternal ongoing unending causation where all three things are present but two of the things are dependent on one of the thing yeah right and that's and that's really sort of the the concept of beginning if you're going to take the very sort of most basic picture of beginning and procession is the idea that the father forever begets or generates the sun and forever outbreathes or spirates the spirit. Um, and this is a unique mode of causation because, well, they all share a common nature, which is the divine nature. And that's what places them on that side of the dividing line as opposed to us who come into being. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So that's what, my best attempt to give a short summary of what the, the bottom line there comes is, down to. There is a better option. Um, there are actually two. We could do a part two whenever the schedule's aligned. But, or okay. people could subscribe to the Substack. Oh, there is that. But right. you gave them the a part of the answer. Um, well, <laughs> there were two topics you wanted to talk about today, and one of them we haven't even mentioned. So we could do a part two, but reserve it for that one. Let's do it. Wasn't um, there a second topic? Yeah, uh, that's the Helen Hades, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the Helen yeah. Hades distinction. Yeah. I actually thought about that on Sunday. I, I sing at my church, and one of the songs literally has a lyric that says, Keys to Death and Hades in his hands. And mm -hmm. that's all I thought about was after that. And then it's anyway, it's hard to have it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, yeah. So, Nathan, enjoyed it, man, really much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet, and I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show, that is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now, for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon. Mm -hmm.